The holiday season is now upon us. The year is absolutely flying by, and the news never stops. That's why we at the DSR Network have expanded our programming to cover even more of the world's events. We hope you will consider supporting our work by becoming a member. Members enjoy an ad-free listening experience, bonus content for virtually all of our shows, an invitation to the member-only Slack community, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of November, you can take 50% off the membership price for the first month. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code STUFFING at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code STUFFING. Thank you very much for your support. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. You know, every once in a while, we ought to really take a good look at economic issues, Um, And when we do that, one of the people we like to do that with the most is my friend Rana Faruhar, who is global business columnist and an associate editor at the Financial Times. She's also CNN's global economic analyst. Her book, Homecoming, is out in paperback. Um, uh, And she's got an article in the Washington Monthly called Bidenomics Really is a BFD. And we'll get to that in a minute. How are you doing, Rana? I'm great. I love that I'm one of your favorite economic people. That's you're one of, you're one I don't know if that's favorite. high praise or low praise, but that I'm is glad. low praise. But you're also one of my favorite people. So, <laughs> um, um, yeah, no, look, face it. People who write about economics are pretty boring. I know, they are, but admit it. But I have all my hair. That's a good thing. Yeah, no, that I, you know, I've always thought that was, I always thought that was a big plus of yours. Um, um, anyway, so you've got an article which says Bidenomics is really a BFD. I think it's a little coy. The Washington Monthly couldn't say big fucking deal, but we can because this is a podcast. It's um, absolutely permissible. BFD yeah, is the, that's the way the kids say it, though, you know, so I think it's is okay. It? Yeah. 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 Um, sadly, I'm so old that my kids aren't even kids anymore. Um, in fact, one of my kids has a kid. Uh, but having having said that, um, talk to me about the article. It's particularly apposite coming on the heels of the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Meeting, which is taking place right now on the West Coast of the United States, hosted by President Biden. Yeah, well, you know, let, we can come to APEC in a minute and don't get too excited about that. But, you know, the the Washington Monthly piece has been in the works for a while. I I wanted to write it, um, and it's pegged, uh, you know, in part to my my book Homecoming, which has just come out in paperback, which actually laid out a lot of Bidenomics, to be perfectly frank, before it became Bidenomics. Um, and I wanted to get across the idea that, look, this is a paradigm shift. 
This is a BFD. This is not just, oh, a tweak here, a tweak there. This is fundamentally the most government-directed economic policy that we've seen definitely since, I would argue, the Eisenhower era, but possibly since FDR, depending on where you want to put the marker. And what's more, it marks, I think, a sea change in the Democratic Party itself. It's it's basically saying we are now in the post-neoliberal era. Summers, Rubin, um, trickle-down, all that's gone. We are in an era in which government can and should be more involved in helping to tweak what used to be called, talk about coy, negative externalities. Um, you know, that means markets functioning not the way they're supposed to, which actually happens a lot more than, than we used to think. And we're seeing so many changes. And I wanted to get across the fact that this administration is doing some really serious stuff. And I don't think they're getting credit for it, not only in the media uh, and in the kind of general public consciousness, but even within the Beltway and and folks in D.C., I, I just don't think that there's enough of an understanding about how big a deal these changes are. Totally agree with you. Don't not only do I think they're not getting credit for it, um, uh, just as economic policy, but it is kind of revolutionary economic policy, as you know, Absolutely. I was in the Clinton administration and we were out there peddling these neoliberal policies. And I have spent the past 30 years repenting because <laughs> you really have. And you've done some good book, good repenting books as well. Well, but, you know, it's it's because, you know, in retrospect, what we were doing was fueling inequality. We were sort of carrying the water for big corporations. Uh, yeah. We were benefiting the few at the expense of the many. Um, and it and it wasn't helping the country grow as it could either. And Biden came in and you would have expected, well, here's this group of Democrats. They're going to do the same thing Democrats have done in the past. But he dispensed with the crowd. Yeah. And which, by the way, Obama did not. Obama carried it. Forward, That's right. But, and, and he dispensed with them. And he came in with a bunch of things that seem really old fashioned. Like, yeah. I care about workers. I care about <laughs> unions. Um, I care <laughs> yeah. about average people more than I care about banks. Um, he was in a picket line. Can we just stop for a moment and and talk about the amazing, amazing image of Joe Biden in a picket line. I mean, did you ever think that you were going to see an American president in a picket line in your lifetime? No, absolutely not. And and the reality is during the Clinton administration, I remember, because I was in one of the sort of aggressively neoliberal leaning parts of the government, the Commerce Department, and there yeah. were some people who were pushing back. Robert Reich, the labor secretary, yeah. Joe Stiglitz, who was at the Council of Economic Advisors. They were right. We were wrong. And, mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, one of the things that we said back then was unions are dead. Yeah. You, you know, that's 11% of the population. It's not, you know, what it was back in the days of Eugene V. Debs. So get over it. And yet yeah. this year, auto workers, writers, uh, actors, hospitality Absolutely. workers, it's, it, it's kind of, all of a sudden people have said, Hey, wait a minute. You, but the average person needs a voice. No, 100%. I mean, it's, well, for starters, we're coming off of literally the most union activity in this country in the last half century. So it is a huge, huge, huge moment for, for labor. And in particular, I think the, the reshaping of the labor capital relationship. Um, 
it's interesting. You know, just to go back to the article for a minute, I want to share my lead anecdote. Um, I had a conversation with Ben Harris, who was uh, Biden's chief economic advisor when he was Veep, and took him through the campaign and you know up to the time he entered the White House. And I called him up because I I wanted to understand, and this is actually what the story gets at. How did a guy that is in some ways kind of middle of the road. I mean, he's certainly, you know, I mean, as, as my friend Felicia Wong, who runs the Roosevelt Institute would say, he's pre-neoliberal. <laughs> you know, he's like, he, he's so old that he's new. Um, how did this guy become kind of a radical? Like doing, actually doing all the stuff that Bernie would talk about, but you know, he would never be able to do because he could only sit in the room with two people at one time. Um, and Ben said, you know, it was interesting when he first went to work for Biden, this is when he was Veep, he went in and, you know, the, his predecessor, Sarah Bianchi, gave him a giant stack of reading material and said, OK, here's here's the stuff to help you get in the president's or the Veep's headspace. And it was really unexpected. Ben said it was a bunch of uh, labor union documents, economics of um, working people. There was stuff on non-compete clauses, and you know, non-compete clauses for the non-geeks in your audience. Although I bet it's pretty geeky audience. It's all geek. Um, it's, okay, good. Yeah, non-competes have been in the news recently because the FTC took on this issue of. Why should companies be able to lock not just people like you or me, but janitors into non-compete clauses that say, hey, if I'm unhappy mopping the floor in, in this school, I can't walk across the street and get a job at the factory across the way. I mean, craziness. But he was reading up on this stuff, you know, years ago, which shows you where his head is. Um, and well, he, said, you know, yeah, he wasn't, Sarah, he wasn't I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt. He wasn't just reading up on it. You know, I have a sense, Barack Obama, I'm just take the Democrats, Barack Obama yeah. and Bill Clinton, both super smart guys, Ivy League educated, um, and both of them, when they came into office, they said, let me get the best and smartest economists and come up with the smartest economic policy you can. Joe Biden, who is pre-baby boom, grew up in Scranton, Pennsylvania, and he's living his life. He's All living stuff, his life. Right. right? All well, that, that stuff you're the, talking about is in his DNA. Well, that's I, the punchline of this anecdote, which I'm now going to tell you. So Ben says, okay, but tell me a little more about him as a person. And Sarah says, look, Ben, what can I tell you? This is a guy who is vice president of the United States, and he still gets up on a ladder and cleans his own gutters. You know, I mean, honestly, I think that this is somebody that simply doesn't fall for the very smart people talk of uh, the economics profession. And it's a really good thing because it's exactly what's needed at this moment. Totally agree with you. The last economics conversation that we had here on our podcast was with our good friend, Nick Hanauer, who's got a book out um, with a couple other folks called Cor Corporate Bullshit, Exposing the Lies and Half-Truths that Protect Profit, Power, and Wealth in America. I don't know if you read it, but if you haven't, no, I haven't you, read them. If yeah. you haven't, you should, because Nick, um, uh, who's a successful business person who's become a billionaire, has become an evangelist for this point of view that you're talking about. And yeah. there is actually a movement afoot, and the movement mm -hmm. is anti-neoliberal. It's mm -hmm. anti these formulations that, you know, uh, people have been, you know, Wall Street 
has been so successful in pounding into the minds of politicians for the past 40 years that yeah. some of them can't even believe that folks aren't buying it anymore. You know, it's, it's, well, you know, I think, I think that that's one of the things that happened actually when the president rolled out the Inflation Reduction Act, right? You know, a huge climate bill, biggest, really biggest industrial policy we've seen in decades in this country. And it got some pushback from Europeans, which was kind of weird because Europe is forever complaining that Americans pollute the world, don't care about climate. Suddenly we've got this huge government led climate bill. I think that they were so surprised, like it took them 100% out of left field. And so they just didn't know what to make of this. And now they're finally getting on board. But I mean, it it goes to your point that people cannot quite get their brains around this transition. No, no. Larry Summers' head actually exploded. I, I mean, I think he spent the past couple of years trying <laughs> oh, to man. clean, clean up. glad none the, of it got on me. Yeah. Well, but to, you know, to clean up some of the mess. And, and, and some of them, including people like him, they were like hurt. Hey, yeah. what do you mean? You know, they, yeah. you don't think we were keeping in mind, you know, all the people and this is this is not going to work. And we're warning you, this is going to blow yeah. up in your face. And then it didn't and it didn't and it didn't. Well, he and, has been. Yeah. No, no. I was just going to conclude with per, per your last point. What's the fastest growing economy, big economy in the uh, world? Which is the absolutely. one that recovered from the crisis first? How, well, not only is the U.S., way outperforming in terms of growth and employment numbers, its peers in Europe, in you know Japan, South Korea, all developed countries. Here's what's really interesting, and this is particularly interesting in light of bringing up Summers. Um, he and you know some of the other kind of diehard neoliberals um, w- talked a lot in the wake of the Biden stimulus about, oh my God, inflation, it's going to be terrible, you're going to screw up the economy. Guess what's coming down now? Inflation. Guess what Jay Powell just said is going to grow the U.S. economy and the labor markets without probably without a need for more rate hikes. Now, I don't want to, you know, don't want to never say never. But we're now talking about an economy that is growing, a labor market that is still robust, even as inflation is going down. Guess why? Because we bailed out the right people this time around actual citizens, not banks. We we did some productive spending on things that were needed. Um, we are really turning, I think, the Titanic of this economy. And, you know, I think that the president's slogan, work not wealth, I mean, on the one hand, it's like, okay, work not wealth is a little bit of a pithy um, campaign slogan, but it's actually profound because we are moving towards an economy that is based on uh, employment and on income growth, and not just on jacking up share share prices and you know um, h- housing prices. I mean that'll be a slower thing to 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 come off uh, to come down. But it, it's just such a big shift. It, it, and I'm I don't know. I'm just I'm grateful and humbled, and I just think this guy doesn't get enough credit. Yeah, and I don't, I'm not. I'm not even going for a job in the in the administration. Believe it or not. Well, you know, there'll probably be another <laughs> four years. Um, because these things resonate with people, frankly, you know, I mean, they, they manifest themselves in a variety of different ways. Yeah. You know, they brought down drug prices and, yeah. and, and of all the things that they're out there pulling on, you know, that does really well because all of oh, a sudden yeah. average people, you know, they had a job, they didn't get tossed out into the street because 
This administration is using different metrics. The scoreboard looks different. It's not what is Wall Street doing, and it's not what's top-line GDP growth. That's Um, right. I have to say I'm glad in the most recent um, campaign advertising that they've started talking a little bit more about cost of living issues because, you know, one of the things that we've all been concerned about is we've got this great economy right now. And why hasn't the president gotten more um, pickup on it? And I think part of that is to the, uh, due to the fact that until recently, cost of living issues, not the president's fault, but because of war in Ukraine, um, you know, co- conflict that has raised commodity prices, those were rising faster than wages. And so some people were feeling like, wait a minute, th- this isn't this, this recovery doesn't feel like one to me. I think that is now starting to change. And I'm, I'm hoping that the polls in the new year are going to start reflecting that. Yeah, well, they, they've started to reflect it. Um, I saw a poll come out yesterday uh, that showed that over the course of the past few months, Biden's economic approval rating has gone up nine points. Why mm-hmm, has it gone up mm-hmm. nine points? It's gone up nine points because the price of eggs is down 32%. Yeah. Right? The yeah. price of gasoline yeah. is down. The little metrics that, and and I'm not minimizing them as metrics, but the the, the micro metrics that that the average person is using, starting yeah. to show up, and yeah. um, I have to say it's not good news for Biden's opponents. Uh, but yeah. frankly, you know, Trump, Trumpism, the Republican Party, they haven't gotten the memo. They are yeah. cut taxes for the rich, get rid of regulation. Do what corporations want. Go, yeah. you know, serve Wall Street, serve the one percent. Um, they're still in you know forty year old trickle down policies. Well, you know the this uh, um, most amazing bad optic of the many bad Trump optics was at the time when Biden was in an actual picket line with the UAW. <laughs> Trump and his people went to a non-union factory to give a press card. It's like, what? I mean, like, do you think people are complete idiots? I see. Well, I they're think, actually, they're actually counting on it, but go on. Well, they're counting. See, I, okay, here's my take on Trump. And I, you know, I'll come back on your show after November and we'll see who's right. But um, I think that Trump did one, one thing that was very smart in his entire political career. And that was to say, openly the thing that I think no politician on either side of the spectrum had really said, conventional politician, which is, you know what, there is a smoky back room and rich people are cutting deals in it that are in their own best interest. Okay. And that's true. But then of course, being himself, what did he do? He's like, Hey, come on back into the smoky room. Like, and let's smoke, let's stink it up more with a bunch of cigars. And that's what he did in the white house. And so there was still, despite all that, this sense of, oh, wow, somebody has pulled back the scrim on the bullshit on either side of the political spectrum. That's the only thing he did. Now, I think the reason Biden won is that he too called bullshit on a lot of the policies and the people that you know we've been talking about. And my hope is that that is going to stick uh, in, the, in 2024. I, I hope it is too. Um, you know, there's still going to be a lot of pushback from greedy billionaires on Wall Street who are, you know, Jamie Dimon, you know, J.P. Morgan, these others who are going to go, well, you know, there's there's got to be something bad about all this helping people he's doing. Um, and, and you know, they've been out there 
try to 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 promote this. Um, but you know something? Doesn't look like there's going to be a hard landing. Doesn't look like there's going to be. Doesn't a, look like there's uh, going to be no. You know, no, it doesn't and even look like there's going to be a soft landing. The GDP numbers actually look like they're going up. You know, it's, yeah. you know that we're we are we are going to recover in a way that literally none of the really smart people that you probably hang out with predicted. Nobody predicted it, and I'll be honest. I actually thought we were going to see a recession. I even thought that we might see. Um, a market, a real market crash, not just a kind of correction, but a, a real crash because, and the reason I say that is not be, because I disagree with any of these policies, but I, I think that we are at a once in a lifetime economic pendulum shift. I mean, these, these big shifts tend to happen about once every, between 50 and 100 years. And, and, you know, you could go way back in history to 18th century mercantilism, and then it swings and you get 19th century laissez-faire, and then eventually you get 1929 and too much froth and the Great Depression, and then you get Keynesianism and you need more government intervention, and then you get to the 70s and, you know, hey, maybe there's a, too much red tape and maybe unions have too much power at that point. So you get the Reagan-Thatcher revolution. And now in this new gilded era that we're in, we are so ripe for a pendulum shift, but they tend to be bumpy. And what's been so amazing about this shift is, yeah, there's been there's been some bumps, but nothing like what many of us thought was going to happen. And I think, in particular, the the COVID related stimulus to individuals and the the power of that, the fact that it has propelled the U.S. ahead of its peers for a good eighteen months to two years, that is such a powerful repudiation of trickle down. It's longer. The, the tailwinds have been stronger. It's done more things for the overall economic picture than any number of tax cuts. I mean, Trump's 2017 tax, that was nothing. That was like drinking a Coke and eating a candy bar. And, you know, if you were wealthy, you know, maybe you got a little bit of a high and then everybody else got a crash. Um, this is a whole different deal. And I think that we're really at the beginning of what is a new economic model, post-neoliberal model. I, I agree, and I, I'd like to come to that to, to come to that in a, in, a, in a second. But you know, it strikes me listening to you know one of the areas I've looked at a lot over the course of the past thirty years is is economic development models around the world, and there have been a lot of sort of models in emerging markets um, that have been around there. And you know, twenty years ago, somebody started to do some crunching of numbers. And they discovered this amazing thing that if you had a country full of poor people and you gave them money, they would spend it better than the government. You know, that what? they, yeah, and that it really the best program to help poor people was to actually give them the money. And, and, and <laughs> you know, and it was like blowing everybody's mind. But you know, in 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 some respects, that's a little bit of what's going on here. It's saying let's not trickle down, let's invest yeah. in people. Yeah. And you know, Biden has this slogan, um, which is middle out and bottom up, or bottom up yeah. and middle out, which yeah. I don't like as a slogan. And I said that to Nick, and Nick said, "Oh yeah, that's my slogan." I was like, "Well, okay, it's it <laughs> sounds great, Nick." But but you know, the the the, the reality is uh, that kind of works. If you, it, you know, those people are the ones that buy the eggs. 
Right. And this is, you're getting at something really important about the last 40 years or so. The reason that's really since the Reagan Thatcher revolution, you've seen asset prices, stocks, housing prices, you know, stuff that rich people own the most of go up, 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 up. But you've seen the economy as a whole stagnate and you've seen wages actually go into negative territory in real terms for many people. That's about the fact that when you have an economy that is 70% consumer spending and people don't have more money in their pocket, like eventually the math stops working. There's only so many houses and pairs of designer jeans and, you know, I don't know, Botox treatments or whatever that, you know, the top 10% that own 85% of the wealth can, can manage. Um, and so you know, I'm, I'm of- laughing because I saw a headline last week in some, uh, rag that I look at that was talking about the mar- the housing market, the Hamptons. And it oh, said the, wow. the bottom was falling out of the middle class housing market in the Hamptons. So I thought, oh, that's interesting. And I read down further. What they mean by middle class housing in the Hamptons is $5 million houses. <laughs> you know, I wrote a column about this. Talk about, talk about inflation. Um, I was, I went to um, spend a little time actually a few years ago with a friend who had a house in the Hamptons. And I took my kids, you know, for, for a week and we went out there to the beach and we went to the IGA, like not, you know, we're not talking to Dean and DeLuca here. Went to the IGA to get the groceries. I filled up a single cart and it was not a large cart. It was almost a thousand dollars at the checkout. And I just thought, oh my God, you know, you can't even get you can't even go to the IGA here without spending a quarter. Well, that's why most of the people that live out there have someone to do that for them. Well, that I guess that's true. Yes, there, that's right. They wouldn't know, be at the IGA. The, 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 if you live in the Hamptons, and on a Monday morning, the traffic is packed coming in. And it's yeah. all service workers who live in the middle of Long Island. Who are coming in to take care of people's houses, to take care of the stuff. Um, they don't actually live there. You know, they're 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 yeah. just sort of servicing the rich people's market. But fortunately, there's a president who's trying to take care of everybody else, and it is um making a difference. When you look at that and you look at, say, the year ahead, if you were writing the State of the Union, which is gonna be mm-hmm. in two months. Mm-hmm. What sh- what should he focus on next? Next, well, I, I if I can just say, I would start by telling a really compact, concise story about what has just happened, which is kind of a miracle. We have come out of the most complicated, most fraught, you know, three four year period in economic history for some time, for many decades. Pandemic, war in Ukraine. Um, we were even before all that, we were at a point when you were sort of due for a recession. Um, we have come into a period of incredibly robust growth, um, record um, levels of unemployment, record productivity, wages um, going up finally above the cost of living. Uh, it's, it's incredible. It's kind of a miracle. And I think he should use that term. Um, in terms of what he is going to do, I would start to talk about- Wait, you're saying- Economic miracle is stronger than Bidenomics. Is stronger yeah. than middle out and bottom up. I, well, I just I'm just like, saying it is. It's really good language. It's the kind you. of language people should use. 
Well, you thank know. you. I mean, I'm from Indiana, so this is this is how I talk. But um, you know, Bidenomics is I get why they took it on, but I don't know. Um, we we do need better language, so we need to brainstorm on that. But here's what I would say. I would now start to connect these big ideas to the real felt experience of people in communities. I would come up with three stories, and this is kind of typically what they do in State of the Union. You know, you always have like the person that's sitting in the audience who comes from this or that community and they call something out. We need to hear about how all this IRA money, all this massive stimulus money is actually affecting Joe and Mary and um, uh, and their kids in um, Minnesota and in Philadelphia and in North Carolina. And we need to hear some of those stories and get and get the faces of those people out there and say, this is what a new economics looks like. It's about people. It's not about numbers and, um, you know, old guys in Ivy Towers um, crunching algorithms. It's about people. And we're making your communities better. And here's how. I think that's right. I, I also think there is a component of it, um, which we talk about a lot here, which is we are on the verge of a major technological revolution in the United States. Yes. And we've got to invest um, yes. in that and in preparing for that. And that I think there is something strong that could be had if a older president had a future oriented message. Well, it's, it's a, it's a, I'd love to come back actually another time and do another podcast on AI with you. I just was down in DC, in fact, a couple days ago, um, speaking at an AI conference that Open Markets did. And of course, the president recently came out with an executive order on AI, which interestingly, picks up on some of the post neoliberal ideas of, we're not going to let five big corporations run things. We want competition. We want antitrust. We want um, an economy that works for for labor, not just for companies. And also, don't get too distracted by these Terminator, you know, um, fears about about uh, artificial intelligence. We've got actual real jobs being taken here and now. This is crucial because if you think about how we got Bidenomics, we got Bidenomics because neoliberal economics disrupted. You know, it, it sounds like a small number, but really somewhere around eight to 12% of the labor force profoundly. It outsourced um, the industrial commons. It sent jobs to China. It allowed capital to go wherever it was, wherever it would. And we lost a lot of middle class manufacturing jobs. And that resulted in uh, some pretty important shifts in politics and, and um, new swing states. We are about to see. 35 to 40% of the labor market disrupted by these new technologies, AI in particular. Think about the populism that could result from that if we don't get it right. Well, and think about the need to actually have labor policies, actually care yes. about engaging uh, and dealing with the issues that are involved here, because I don't think we understand uh, exactly what the disruption will mean. You know, uh, my dad was a scientist at Bell Labs hmm. um, uh, and, and worked in the department that actually laid some of the groundwork for what has become AI. Uh, and he, in the 60s and 70s, would regularly go to conferences and they'd talk about the futures, future of computing and they would stand up and say, we need to train scientists and mathematicians. Hmm. And my dad would say, no, yeah. you don't understand. The computer is going to do that. Yeah, um, and yeah. you know it's going to it's it's we need different sets of skills, 
And well, that's actually a great point. And it kind of comes to another thing that Biden may want to focus on the new year, which is the care economy. That's the one piece of Bidenomics that didn't not again, not his fault, but it didn't get passed through the Build Back Better um, first iteration uh, and the Senate Senate vetoed the, the care economy stuff. Um, and so that's still sort of out there and we need to figure out how can we actually reward um, skills that are about empathy, skills that are about humanity, skills that are about creativity. How can we educate for that? I mean, this is, this is really important stuff for sure. Yeah, absolutely. It's, we, we all have to look at ourselves and say, what is it that I can do that a machine can't do? Yeah. Uh, and by the, the way, podcasts. Podcasts. Well, probably they can do that. Probably, um, but they wouldn't be as they wouldn't be as fun as we are. I don't think. No, well, not at the beginning. But if you train the <laughs> AI fast and properly, I think know, we should do a podcast where we pretend to be AI and see I, what that's I, like. Frankly, Rana, as far as our readers, our listeners are concerned, we may be AI. They don't know. <laughs> Uh, I think they should vote. Call in. The Turing test for podcasting. (laughs) Can you tell the difference between the host and guests and a machine? Um, uh, Well, hopefully. Hopefully they can tell there's some kind of difference here. Um, If if, if for no other reason, your hair, which we come back to. I mean, machines don't have that. They can't. Um, They can't do it yet. No, fortunately. Um, In any event. Uh, It's always good to talk to you. It's always good to catch up. Uh, I'm really glad to give our listeners a chance to uh, hear what you've got to say. I hope that they go and they they read your article in Washington Monthly, and I hope that they go uh, and they get uh, the paperback edition of your book. um, Thank you. and, um, uh, And I hope you come back soon. I will do. Thanks so much, David. Thank you. And thanks to everybody for listening. We'll be back with... Uh, more each and every day. Until then, bye-bye.